You are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, our gathering times at any of our central Indiana locations, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Pastor Ross Steele. We are uh, continuing in 2 Samuel. For those who don't know uh, much about Life Church, if you are a guest with us, we're an expository preaching church. Uh, so we go through uh, book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, and we teach the Word of God. We believe that there's a lot of power in teaching the Word of God. And, and uh, lately we've been going through the book of Samuel. We finished 1 Samuel. We're going through 2 Samuel. Now we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 10 today. But for those who uh, already know, y'all know I love jokes, right? So I got a great one to start the service. And if you don't laugh, I will be, I'll, I'll laugh at myself. It's okay if you don't laugh. But this one actually got sent to me this week by Alyssa, who she actually sends me jokes all the time that she sees because I do it so often here and they're dad jokes. But uh, this one, uh, I laughed at myself. You can ask Kelsey. It was during breakfast. I read it and then I laughed and I laughed and I kept laughing. But uh, why can't Jesus wear any jewelry? Anybody got any guesses? Because he breaks every chain. Come on now. That's good. Come on. That's good. All right. Hey, now that everybody's guards down, just just settle in. All right. It's going to be fun. It's going to be entertaining. We're going to have fun. You know, being in church doesn't always have to be serious. We, we can have fun with it. And serving the Lord is fun. And we have a lot of joy while doing it. Amen. All right. Uh, when, when I say we've been in Second Samuel, we may be thinking, Old Testament, oh, this is probably a drag, maybe, if you haven't been with us. But I believe that there's a lot of power in the Old Testament. And whenever we find ourselves in the Old Testament, it's always good uh, and important to remember that the New Testament teaches us about the older books. Paul writes this in Romans 15, 4. It says, a, uh, there we go, uh, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Are you ready to be encouraged this morning? Amen? All right, hey, guys, by the way, if you don't know, uh, well, you're about to know, I love when you talk back. I love a talk back church. And you may not be used to it, but if I'm preaching, just, just let me know. Just amen or, hey, talk to me, whatever you're comfortable with. It helps me to know you're listening, most importantly. Um, and, and, you know, it's not really for my ego. It's just like, I need to know y'all, y'all are with me. Y'all are paying attention and, and you're receiving what, what I believe that the Lord has prepared for us this morning. So, okay, there we go. Hey, uh, so the title of my message today is you cannot win. And you're like, shoot, I thought you said you want to be encouraged. I'm like, yeah, we're going to get encouraged, uh, but, but not maybe in the way that you think this morning. So as we read through 2 Samuel chapter 10, we're going to read first in verses one, uh, 1 and 2. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. Uh, so, he's, so David sent some of his servants to, con to console him concerning his father. But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, oh, that's verse 3. We're not getting there yet, okay? First part, I will show kindness. We see that. We saw that last week as well. And uh, this was the kindness to Mephibosheth that we saw in the previous chapter. 
but it didn't end there. It didn't end his kind works in, in that text. And here he showed kindness towards a pagan king because he sympathized with the loss of his father. And when he says, so he sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him. David, he wasn't content to feel kindness towards him, but he actually did something. He did something to, to bring the grieving man comfort in this time. I think he could relate. And as we continue in verses 3 through 5, the princes of the Ammonites said to Han and their Lord, do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and sent them away. When they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho until your beards grow and then return. What do we see here? The, 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 the people there are, are trying to convince him, like, do you actually think that, that uh, he's really trying to honor your father because he sent these people to, to comfort you? And it's hard to explain really why these advisors to Hanan said this to the king. And, and it's possible that they genuinely suspected David. It is very possible. Or they perhaps used this as a way to appear wise and cunning to King Hanan. After all, it is common for liars to suspect others of lying. Hanan took David's servants. He shaved off half their beards and, and cut their garments down in the middle, and he sent them away. And this, guys, in this time, this was, uh, this was gr disgraceful insults to these ambassadors from Israel. In that culture, many men would rather die than have their beards shaven off. And this was because a clean-shaven face was the mark of a slave, and free men wore beards. The beard in this culture is, is held in a high respect in the East. The possessor considers uh, it his greatest ornament, often swears by it, and matters of great importance pledges it. Nothing can be more secure than a pledge of this kind, and its owner will redeem it at the hazard of his life. To cut off their garments was also an obvious insult and humiliation. Uh, in, in a commentary I was reading in preparation, uh, David Trapp says this, that the shame of their nakedness might appear, and especially that of their circumcision, so derided by the heathen. To insult the ambassador is to insult the king. It was just as if they had done this to David himself. The same principle is true with King Jesus and his ambassadors. Jesus reminded his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. As we continue on, verses 6 and 7, now when the sons of Ammon, Ammon saw that they had become odious to David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Bethrob. Beth Rehob, and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army, the mighty men. They knew that they had done this. David didn't reject the Ammonites, they made themselves repulsive to Israel. This was a common practice when they, when they would go and hire 
the Arameans, they would hire the, the, the Syrians. This was a common practice in the ancient world. In 1 Corinthians 19.6 says that the Ammonites paid 1,000 talents to the Syrians. When David heard of it, he sent Job, as we read here. This is the first mention of David's mighty men, calling them the army of the mighty men. They formed a glorious fighting force, like a, a special forces, as you wish. We, we often say here in America we have, we have the, the best military. We have the strongest military around in the world. This is kind of, I mean, you could relate it to this. David's men were, were the best of the best. And it's important to understand that David was nothing without his mighty men. And they were nothing without him. He was their leader, but a leader is nothing without followers. And David had an army of the mighty men to follow him. The men didn't necessarily start, though, as mighty men. Many were the distressed, indebted, and, and dis, uh, discontented people who followed David at Adullam's cave back in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And just to put into perspective, one of these mighty men was Adino the Esnite, famous for killing 800 men at one time. And we'll see that down the road in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Another was uh, uh, Jashabim, who killed 300 men at one time. That's in 1 Chronicles 11. And another was Benaiah. Uh, By the way, I say this every week. I'm terrible at pronouncing these names. So we're just going to roll with it, okay? Uh, another was Benaiah, who killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day and killed a huge Egyptian warrior with his own spear, also seen in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. We continue on, verses 8 through 12. The sons of Ammon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, while the Arameans of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maka were by themselves in the field. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and, and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of uh, Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong. Let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. He saw the battle. He saw how they were formed up against him. And as the army of the mighty men approached the Ammonite city, they found themselves surrounded. In front of them were the Ammonites in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And behind them were the Syrians in the field. It looked bad for the army of Israel, who was supposed to be the greatest army. And if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me, and, and vice versa. Joab, he only had one strategy in this. And this wasn't to back down. It was to attack. He said, we're going to split, and we're, we're going to take them on. Many generals would consider surrender when surrounded on both sides. This doesn't really seem like a great uh, battle tactic, if you ask me. But he, he gives a... Uh, he called the army to, to courage and faith and, and told him to press on. He inspires him. He, he gives a, an inspiring speech right before we go out. I mean, most people maybe have seen Braveheart in here. You know that speech when he's on the horse. He's getting wild, and it, it amps me up, and I'm not even there. I'm sitting in a chair and definitely not on the face of battle. But imagine in, in that, that's, that's what's happening here in this verse. It says, be of good courage. Let us be strong. Courage and strength are not matters of feeling and circumstance. They are matters of choice, 
especially when God makes his strength available to us. As Ephesians 6 says, we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, in the strength of his might. Let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. Joab called them to remember all that they had to lose. If they lost this battle, they would lose both their people and their cities. This was a bigger battle than themselves, far bigger than themselves. And the army of the mighty men had to remember that. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Joab wisely prepared for the battle to the best of his ability and worked hard for the victory. And at the same time, though, he knew that the outcome was ultimately in God's hands. The word says faith without works is dead. Like, we can go into anything with faith, but if we just say, hey, I'm going to have faith, but I'm not going to do any preparation, I'm not going to do any work to do this, then what are we expecting the outcome to be? Like, we see here Joab is preparing, and he, and he is setting his people up for success. He's going in headstrong. He's all in, but, but he has the faith that backs up. He says, ultimately, Lord, let your will be done. Let your will be done. In verse 13 through 14, it says, So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. They fled before him. It doesn't even say that Joab engaged the Syrians in the battle at all. This mercenary army that was paid fled before the army of the mighty men because God was with them. God promised this kind of blessing upon an obedient Israel in Deuteronomy 28.7. They also fled before Abishai. When the Ammonites saw that the Syrians were retreating, they also retreated. They were like, oh, we can't take them on without them. So we got we to gotta back up. We're going to go back into the city. We're going to back into our homes, back into the gates where we're protected. They could no more stand before the army of the mighty men than the Syrians could. Verses 15 through 19. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And, and Hadadezer sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. And they came to Helam. And Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, led them. Now, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel, and David killed 700 charioteers in the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobak and the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings, servants of Hadadezer, saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon any more. They saw that they'd been defeated. The enemies of Israel wouldn't just quit after one defeat. It really wasn't even a, a true defeat. I mean, they, they stood there, they looked at him, they are like, yeah, no, too big, we're going to skeet out of here. And they were, they, were, they were persistent enemy, though. They came back. They're like, they changed their mind, basically. They're like, oh, we should probably actually go fight. Maybe we can take them on. They, they, they had to give themselves a little bit of courage. But David, he, he gathered the rest of the army of Israel to prevent this army of reinforcements from crushing the army of the mighty men. The result was glorious, and they had fled before Israel. 
The chapter ultimately, it, it, it ends with unfinished business at Rabbah. The offending Ammonites were still in their city, and Joab would return to Jerusalem. And we will see more of what happens in chapters to come, but, uh, but just know that this is, there is unfinished business here. And 2 Samuel 10 shows that God gave David a warning by showing it was necessary for him to come out against the Syrians. David tried, he did try to leave the battle with Joab, as we just read, but his army needed him. So he goes out, and God endeavored to show him that by blessing Israel, when David did go out to battle. And 2 Samuel 10 says, or shows that uh, it, was, it was God's gracious warning that David will sadly waste as we move on. The warning of, hey, you need to be out there fighting with your men. And as we continue on through this book, you're going to see kind of where this, where this all ties in. But this is one of those chapters in the Bible where it's very easy to say, well, this is all very interesting, but, but really what does it actually matter? Why does any of this matter? And when I first looked over this chapter, I was kind of scratching my head and, and wondering if there really was some kind of lesson or, or encouragement for us in this chapter. And I'd say some scholars believe this chapter was only included to set the scene for David's massive failures that we'll see in chapter 11. But if we look backward instead of forward, we could also say that in all likelihood, this is simply an expansion of what we've already looked at a couple weeks ago in chapter 8. And as we look back there, there are things that are familiar. In chapter 8, verse 3 through 8, we see familiar names. We see Hadadezer, the Syrians, Rehob, Zobah. So what we find in chapter 10, either it took place before what happened in chapter 8, or chapter 10 simply gives us, chapter 10 simply gives us a, greater, um, uh, a greater detail about what is summarized up in chapter 8. So why is that important? And I believe it's because in one sense we could conclude that the spiritual lesson for us, the encouragement for us here in chapter 10, is the same encouragement from chapter 8. As Proverbs 21, 31 expresses it this way, the horse is prepared for the day of the battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. We can prepare all we want, and we, we will and may have victory, but it belongs to the Lord. It's nothing that we necessarily did. We, we're faithful in our preparation uh, when we're stepping into battle, but, but the victory all along always is and always will be the Lord's that belongs to him. And strangely, in chapter 10, it's actually Joab who reminds us of this comforting truth. See that in verse 12, it says, Be strong, let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our Lord, for the cities of our God. But may the Lord do what is good in his sight. That was true for God's people then, and it is still true for God's people today. That every success, every win, every advance, every victory in your life is God's victory. And he should ultimately and always get the glory. But I think that there's something else here. I think there's a, a sub-point, as, as you wish you could say, an, an aspect of this broader idea of God giving the victory that we need to look at this morning. Before we explore the sub-point, I want to point out three features of the passage that God has given us here in chapter 10. The first is that there is hostility in response to kindness. We have an idea how Nahash helped David. Well, we have no idea how Nahash helped David. From what we know of Nahash, we didn't, he didn't seem like a very generous guy. 
And, and if you recall, he was one of, that was wanting to gouge out all the right eyes of the people in uh, Jabesh Gilead all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. And the people were only rescued when Saul showed up and claimed his first victory as king. But since Nahash had no love for Saul, maybe he helped David uh, in some way when David was on the run. Whatever happened, David wanted to express his condolences, to be a good neighbor to the new Ammonite king. But Hanan is swayed by his princes and wrongly believes David is up to no good. So he responds to David's kindness with hostility and humiliates David's servants. But we also see in this chapter that there is resistance instead of repentance. In verse 6, we notice how the Ammonites realize that instead of teaching David a lesson, David is probably going to come back and teach them a lesson. Why? Because they stink with disrespect and foolishness. Now at this point, the Ammonites would be wise to make peace with David, to seek his forgiveness, to attempt to somehow make amends for all the beard shaving and the garments being cut and trimmed. So is that what they do? No. Instead of repenting, they dig in their heels. They say, well, I'm just going to keep on digging myself a hole here. I'm not going to back down. I'm just, we're going to set in right here, and we're just going to stick with it. Instead of repenting, they, they dig in their heels. And more than that, they dig into the, the Ammonite treasury and buy themselves reinforcements. They buy themselves mercenaries. Instead of just being humbled, they said, no, we're just going to go through this, and, and we're just going to keep making it a bigger deal than, or a bigger mess than what it should be or could be. It seems like uh, a really terrible idea. I mean, we aren't told what David was planning to do about the Hanan's original offense, but, but now with the Arameans massing on his eastern border, David has to take action. He can't just sit by and, and let them attack without doing anything. And so he sends Joab and the army to answer the Ammonites' uh, uh, provocations. But there's one more thing that I'd like to point out. Finally, we find in chapter 10 that there is scheming in the aftermath of defeat. The Ammonites and the Arameans fail. This coalition of the willing and, and the paid is beaten by Joab and Abishai and the mighty, mighty men, which was something like the, the special forces, CIA, Green Berets, Navy SEALs, whatever. You think of like the best of the best, this is it. But Joab does not take or destroy the city. His decision may have had something to do with the calendar, going into a rainy season, it may not have been a good idea to engage uh, in, in a siege of Rabbah. As chapter 11, verse 1 indicates that Joab will wait until the spring to conquer Rabbah. And we'll get into that more next week. But the pride of the Syrians here has been bruised. Even though they were simply the, the hired guns for Ammon, they, were, they are now taking their defeat very, very personally. So what do they do? They mobilize all the Aramean tribes, even the ones from the east of the Euphrates River. And leading them is the infamous Shobak, who must have been some kind of superstar commander to, to lead the unstoppable army. Great plan, right? We're going to get everybody, and I'm going to get the best commander I can, and we're going to put them in charge, and they're going to take them down. Wrong. This time, David himself leads the battle, and the Syrians are trounced once again. But this time, the Syrians learn their lessons, and they submit themselves to David's authority. I mean, why would you even want to go against David? They thought David won't go out and fight. David realizes, oh, I have to go out and fight. And we already know that he is a great warrior. We, we, we learned about why it wasn't David who was going to build the temple. 
but it, but it's, but it's uh, his son that will down the road. We'll see that because he is a great warrior. He's needed for war to lead his army of mighty men. So as we take all of this in and try to think about it in the larger context of this book of, of Samuel, I want you to also consider the message of Psalm 2. It's going to be on the screen, but you can flip there in your, in your Bibles if you, if you have it. And listen to the, what the psalmist tells us here. And think about how it connects to our main passage this morning. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain, a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore... O king, show discernment, take warning. O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Be homage or do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see kind of what God is telling us here in Psalm 2 and also in 2 Samuel 10? He's reminded us that to try or, or, or to try to, if we do try, we all probably have at one time or another, try to fight against God and his Messiah that you cannot win. He already has the victory. He's the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. He literally created all of this. It all belongs to him. So why would you even want to fight against him? Why would you want to even stand against him? I want to go back to one of these verses here is uh, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. We hear a lot about how, you know, the uh, Lord hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and a sound mind. But in even the New Testament, we see a lot of things on the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? Being reverence and, and, and awe of God and who he is. And, and uh, when I was preparing for this and I came across Psalm 2, I was like, uh, kind of taken away by this verse because what I've been reading lately, I've been reading this book called Awe of God by John Bevere. And it's basically like a daily devotional and it's a life group that I'm going to be leading. Uh, but I, uh, I've just, I've been put into a whole new perspective because we also see that perfect love casts out all fear. But when we, when we, uh, when we submit to the reverence and awe of God, the holy fear, as, as, as we could call it, that that is the perfect love that casts out all fear. The holy fear casts out all fear. It's fear not to be scared and timid in front of the Lord, but is to hold in high respect and high honor and reverence and in awe. And we can do that not just in our actions, but in our worship. It could be in our conversations. It could be in our lives when no one's around. I mean, it is literally in, in, all within our lives and in around us. For those who fought in God's name... It was their confidence that victory belongs to the Lord. But when you are in opposition to God, that same truth should be incredibly sobering. You cannot defeat God. 
Hanan could not win. Hadadezer could not win. If God has raised up David, if God has made a covenant with David, if God has promised David he will have rest from his enemies, then you cannot win. But listen to a prayer, a prayer in which a portion of Psalm 2 is actually featured, and that's in Acts. We find it in Acts chapter 4. Verse 24 through 28. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your father, David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The kings and princes of 2 Samuel were not, on, not, were not the only ones who tried to destroy God's anointed king. There was Herod, there was Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel, all tried to destroy Jesus, the son of, Jesus, the son of David, Jesus the true king. But even though it seemed their plan had succeeded, they also failed. Because when you fight against God, you cannot win. And when the Jewish leaders who helped put Jesus to death were trying to figure out how to get rid of his pesky disciples after the resurrection, one of the wiser teachers, uh, teachers Gamaliel, gave his fellow Jews this advice in Acts 5. Verse 38, so in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action of men, it will be overthrown. In verse 39 here, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may even be found fighting against God. Isn't the pattern in 2 Samuel chapter 10, the same pattern we see in this world today. There is hostility in response to God's kindness. There is resistance instead of repentance. And even when people fail to overthrow God or get rid of him, when they fail to undo what he's done, there is still scheming in the aftermath of defeat. Some may think that they've won, but we know in the end that victory belongs to the Lord. One day, every person on this earth will stand before God. And for the hostile, for the resistance, for the schemers, there will only be defeat. You see, this truth is not, is not limited to those on the outside, to those who are not God's people. As King Abijah said to the northern tribes of Israel in 2 Chronicles 13, 12, now behold, God is with us at our head and his priests with the signal trumpets to sound the alarm against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord God of your fathers, for you will not succeed. So what about you today? Are you one of God's people because of Jesus? Because he set you free with his own blood? If you are, do you still find yourself at times fighting against God? I believe at, at some point or time that we all do. For example, maybe there's someone that he wants you to speak with, but you're fighting him. 
Maybe there is something he wants you to, to give up or to let go of or to throw out, but you're fighting him. Maybe there's a relationship that God wants you to restore, but you're fighting him. Maybe there's a relationship God wants you to end, but you're fighting him. Maybe there is a sin that he wants you to confess, but you're fighting him. Maybe there is love or peace or grace that he wants you to embrace, but you're fighting him. Church, we need to remember that we cannot win. What do I mean? I mean you cannot achieve what you hope to achieve. Peace without surrender. More joy but less obedience. Stubbornness without consequences. A closer walk with God while pushing him away. You cannot win. Listen, God wants you to know this morning that surrendering to him is far sweeter than the empty temptation that we can somehow defeat him and get our own way. Listen to how a couple of the New Testament writers describe this idea of surrenders, of surrender in James 4. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 1 Peter 5. You, younger men, likewise be subject to your elders and all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Notice how I said, humble yourselves. Humble yourself before the Lord. It's not, hey, Lord, humble me. It's time for you to humble yourself. We have to humble ourselves before the Lord. So whether you have never surrendered to God through Jesus or need to do that this very morning in regard to a specific area of resistance, God gives more grace. He gives more grace. It's time to lay down our arms, to, to, to stop scheming, to stop being stubborn. It's time to surrender. Let that pride or that fear be glorious, wonderfully defeated by the Lord and his anointed, Jesus Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I'm going to invite our prayer team up this morning. We're going to have a moment of, of laying it down. We're going to have a moment of surrender. And I want to do something a little different, actually. The prayer team had no idea this was happening. Uh, they're finding out right now because I feel like the Lord is telling me, I feel like the Spirit's leading me to do this. We all have something that we need to surrender. Whether it's a relationship, a job, all the things I could have mentioned and even the things that maybe came to mind that I didn't mention. Maybe it's an addiction to, to, to pornography or, or lust or, or alcohol or, or drugs, whatever it may be. One, know that you're welcome here. We, we're glad you're here. But, and, and none of us are, are, are perfect or, or we're not even expected to be perfect. But God wants us to instead of resist, to repent. It's time to surrender and it's time to lay these things down. So you may be here this morning, you're like, I don't like going to the altar. Well, I believe that the Lord is leading us to the altar this morning. I believe that Every single one of us have something. And it may not be a big thing. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Maybe something small that you're just like, oh, it's just, you know, it's just who I am. 
No, if it takes you away from God, it's not who you are. It's time to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. So what I'm gonna do this morning is while we go into worship here in a little bit, I want us to come to the altar. I want all of us to come to the altar. And if, if it means to, to kneel at the altar, if it means to lay, prostrate, whatever it means for you to lay it all down and surrender, whatever pride, whatever envy, whatever unforgiveness that we may hold and we may carry into our lives and into our, into our relationships and our friendships, into work, whatever it may be, it's time to lay it down. God's telling us this morning, I want to take that. First Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Cast all your worries. Cast all your doubts onto him because he cares for you. It's time, to, it's time to give it up. It's not your weight to carry. It's not your weight to carry. Jesus died on the cross so that we could live in freedom. He died on the cross so that we don't have to carry the weight of our sins and the shame and the guilt that comes with it. He wants us to be free. And in that freedom, we will rejoice in the Lord. We're going to have victory. So I'm going to invite you guys, come on down. Whether it's kneeling, standing, sitting, whatever it may be for you. And our prayer team is just going to walk around. We're just going to lay our hands on you. And we're going to be praying over you. We're going to do that this morning. I believe that this morning that, 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 that chains will be broken, that strongholds will be broken, that walls will be, will be torn down, that maybe you are the one that holds the hammer to keep building it up. But it's time to lay the hammer down. It's time to let God break through that wall. Surrender it this morning, guys. There's no shame in it this morning. I'm going to be down here with you this morning. I want you guys down here. I need you guys to be down here because I want you guys living the most free lives that Jesus has for you. So come on, come on church, it's time to respond, it's time to surrender, it's time to lay it down this morning. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.